As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. So a group that functions well, basically, can behave selfishly with respect to other groups. You haven't, pro- you haven't solved the problem of selfishness. You've just elevated it to the level of the group where it can take place with more destructive force than, than ever. Professor David Sloan Wilson is one of the world's foremost cognoscentes in evolutionary theory. He's almost single-handedly responsible for the resurgence of the idea of group selection. At least he's responsible for the popularization of it versus individual selection. Now, individual selection was the dominant paradigm of the 20th century. Although he's made some amendments to group selection and now calls it multi-level selection theory. As usual, these are often technically dense, and I expect that there's a certain level of familiarity with the material or the terminology, such as existential security, Victor Huang's innovation oasis, as it relates to evolutionary theory. And then if for whatever reason you don't know the material, you don't know the terminology, then I expect that you'll look it up because you're far brighter than most podcasts give you credit for. This conversation was filmed approximately a year and a half ago, way before COVID, for a documentary called Better Left Unsaid, which is all about when does the left go too far, politically speaking, because it seems like the right, it's fairly clear when the right goes too far. This documentary is slated for release in 2021, and if you want to follow it, the links are in the description. Generally speaking, if there's a product of mine, like I helped create it, and it's more than six months old, then I'm abjectly mortified by it because I can only see the flaws in it. I wasn't happy with the quality of it, so I took it down, but many of you have emailed me as well as 
reviewing some of the comments. It seems like plenty of you enjoyed it a significant amount. Maybe it's one of the better conversations out there with Davis Sloan Wilson. So hopefully you enjoy it just as much now. There's a bit of extra footage that I've included. Enjoy. Hello, Hello. Professor. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I appreciate you inviting us into your home. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Let's get straight to it. Do you think that we're losing values in the West? I think we're in a crisis condition, so that's a loss of something. But whether we call that loss of values, I think, is uh, probably too simplistic. Uh, we still have values, of course, and I think that uh, those values appear to be threatened. And so uh, that's why we're in, in, uh, in crisis mode. But uh, I think to go further than that, we need to probe questions such as the West, what is it, what does it represent, uh, what values does it represent, are we talking about democracy, are we talking about um, 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 enlightenment values, are we talking about uh, individuals, uh, such concepts of freedom, and so on. Uh, what can be said, I think, is that the Western system is in some sense not working, and it's ceasing to become an exemplar for others. And so that is very concerning. Can you explain what are some of the values that you see that are essential, that are going away? I'm just going to move this guy, this sort of fly. Yeah, right. Disrupting your flow of thought. Right. <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's still, it likes you. It likes you. It's group selected. Can, uh, let's see if, if we, we can try to terminate it if we need to. But uh, not very, That's not very group selected of you. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Um, so that question was what again? Okay, what are these values? So you mentioned that we're losing some values. Maybe it's democracy, you post maybe, maybe it's enlightenment values. What do you see are the values that when we lose them, we're put in a crisis mode, as you put it? Well, at some point I know we're gonna to get to multi-level selection, which has to do with basically, uh, how do we envision society? Do we envision it expansively, such as the whole world? Uh, are we nationalistic? Do we view it as our nation first? Uh, or do we view it uh, in a more factional sense, our party first, uh, for example, or perhaps even smaller? And a lot of what we mean by the left and the right actually means our choice of unit. Uh, the right nowadays is restricting itself to some tribe, basically. And, uh, and the so-called left is, uh, you might say, more expansive, more global in its thinking. But even globalism itself is problematic because uh, I think that there's types of globalism. And the type of globalism that's represented by capitalism, global capitalism, is one which is not working. It's global, but it's not working for the benefit of everyone. So I think that's part of the crisis, is that capitalism, which is the system that we associate with the West, is become deeply problematic. When we talk about such things as socialism and capitalism, um, these are the modes of political philosophy in the, in the past. There's a sense in which neither one works, and we need to come upon something that's new that does work. And I believe that evolutionary theory provides the key to a form of governance which can work um, at the global scale and all smaller scales. That's part of what multi-level selection is about. Can you explain the difference between multi-level selection and group selection? Is it just a rebranding? 
so let's talk about the difference between multi-level selection and, and uh, group selection. And in the process, let's define for viewers who are not um, already knowledgeable about this kind of stuff, what some of the issues are at stake. And so going all the way back to Darwin, Darwin thought that um, his theory could explain all aspects of design that had been attributed to a creator. Everything that works has a functional basis. He thought that had been attributed to creator. He thought he could explain this with his theory of natural selection. But upon further thought, he came up against a dilemma, which is, if you think of anything that we associate with morality, if I asked you to define the morally perfect individual, you would use adjectives such as altruistic, loving, giving, honest, brave, all of these are things that benefit others and one society as a whole and often involve some cost to the moral individual. And so when Darwin contemplated the moral individual compared to his or her opposite, the immoral individual, well, it's the immoral individual that has the advantage in the struggle for existence. There's something associated with all forms of goodness that's vulnerable to all forms of uh, evil. And so Darwin could not explain everything associated with virtue as a product of natural selection unless he added something. And that something was to think about natural selection at a slightly larger scale. So while altruism is vulnerable to selfishness within any given social group, it's also the case that a group of altruists, a group of virtuous people will robustly outcompete a group of, who, of people who cannot cohere. And so now we do have a process of, of natural selection that can favor virtue, but it's a process that takes place at the level of groups, not at the level of competition among individuals within groups. And so there's group selection is two-level selection. It looks at what's, what happens within groups, competition among individuals within groups, and then what happens with competitions among groups in some kind of multi-group population, a group inhabited by many tribes, as Darwin um, talked about it. So you could call that two-level selection. Now, multi-level selection simply expands that. It goes up and down. Going down, we can talk about genes within individuals. So a gene can succeed at the expense of other genes within the same organism. We call that cancer. And there's many examples of that kind of selfish gene. Um, or genes can, can, can evolve by cooperating with other genes in the organism, in which case natural selection is taking place at the level of organisms outcompeting other organisms. So it's the same dynamic that I just described, except it's genes in organisms. Then we get to organisms in groups. And do you know there's groups of groups of groups? So we could talk about ecosystems for example, our microbiomes. It turns out that you are not just a homogenous collection of genes. You are a planet inhabited by many thousands of, of microbial species numbering in the trillions of individuals. And when you're selected, when you, when you survive and reproduce better than others, in part it's due not to your genes, but to your microbiome. And the good microbiomes are being selected uh, along with the good genes, and they're interacting with uh, 
each other. In other words, what we think of as individual selection is actually group selection when you think about the collection of it cells. It turns out the microbiomes is a game changer because before we were kind of on to that concept of microbiomes, it seemed that we were a relatively uniform collection of, of genes. We start out as a single egg, and then those cells divide and divide and divide, but they all have the same genes. Well, not really, because actually mutations are occurring with every cell division. And by the time you get to my age, do you know, you know, I'm a very diverse entity at this point. Even my genes, thanks to mutations, have resulted in all sorts of, of uh, they're called neoplasms, but they're basically cell lines that have proliferated more than the normal uh, cell lines. And that's what cancers are, basically. So, uh, but anyhow, um, so uh, um, for the most part, except for that, then um, all of our uh, all of our genes are are identical in all of our cells. So that makes us a pretty potent unit of selection. That made individual level selection to be a very very strong uh, a force. Okay. Well, it still is. I mean, nothing has changed except the the uh, realization that uh, we're not such homogenous entities after all. We're some kind of ecosystem. Um, and it's uh, actually hard to know who's calling the shots. So uh, you know, this is uh, um, one of the very interesting developments that have taken place over the last 30 years, uh, which have revolutionized uh, the study of uh, evolution. That's just one that we'll be covering during this conversation. You mentioned that the difference between the right and the left is which level of group should we select for? Can in you give part, me some part, examples? Something else about the right and the left. The, the standard definition of the right and the left is conservative, progressive, keeping the old ways, or doing something new. That's the standard definition. If you go back 30 years ago, then the debates would not be about levels. Everyone would be an American. The question is, what should America do? Or what should the world do? Should we stick to the old ways or should we do something new? And so this, uh, this fragmentation uh, of social identities is something which I think is, you might even question whether it falls along left-right lines. I think to an extent it would, but when you look at the left, for example, and identity politics and so on, then what you find is also a fragmentation of social identities. It's along different lines, but it's still, you know, LGBT or, or um, um, uh, all these various interest groups that, uh, or you might say social identities in which you identity, we do have to do something about this fly, don't we? Yeah, we can't get rid of it, but don't well, worry. We can get rid of it, actually. We can't? Yeah, hold on just a minute. Can okay. I get up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I have actually it's multiple ways of getting, <laughs> getting it. Demonetized instantly. You were defining what identity politics is, and then you were about to say what the problems were. Can we get back to defining what identity politics is to people who are unfamiliar? And you said something inter interesting, which is that it doesn't seem like it's the left. And I also want you to explain, what do you mean by it doesn't fall on the left-right spectrum, identity politics? Okay, so... Um... Identity politics is when a person has a very strong social identity that trumps other identities. 
Actually, we all have many identities. One thing you can say about our species, which stretches back to the very beginning, is that people have always functioned in multiple groupings. Back in the old days, it was called fission-fusion societies. I'm talking about the hunter-gatherer, our ancestral uh, environments. We might be in family groups, we might be in hunting groups, we might be in gathering groups, we might gather in tribes. Uh, always we do things in different groupings. And do you know we're so good at that, that we can adopt the identity of that grouping. When I go to church, then I'm adopting a certain set of values and norms. Uh, if then I go bowling, I'll, there'll be another set. If I'm you go in, to church? If, uh, uh, no, no, I'm not religious at all. If I'm, um, if I'm in the military, then that will be uh, something else. And so uh, we always have had multiple identities and must because we live in so many different contexts. But when we talk about identity politics, then a particular identity sort of trumps the others. And when that identity is a relatively narrow identity, such as I identify myself as a, as a um, white American or a LGBT or a um, Democrat, uh, whatever, if that's my primary identity, then it's very easy to see other, well, that basically creates an us and separates the us from the them and very little good can come of that. Okay, here's something interesting. One, you said that it was a narrow identity. I want to know why is some people who pride themselves as being gay or, or pride themselves as being black or, or pride themselves as being white would say, that's not narrow at all. Why are you calling it narrow? So I want to know why are you calling it narrow? And second, you said that it's us versus them. But as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in group selection, group selection works when the group pressures are higher than the individual pressures for selection. But this, this sounds like us versus them is good for group selection. Well, it is good for group selection at a small scale. But part of the dynamic of multi-level selection is that when I talked about um, selfishness within groups being bad for the group and the need for group selection for the group to function well, that gets repeated up the multi-level hierarchy. So a group that functions well basically can behave selfishly with respect to other groups. You haven't, pro you haven't solved the problem of selfishness, you've just elevated it to the level of the group where it can take place with more destructive force than, than ever. So that's the sense in which if your primary identity is X, and that's what you're most eager to preserve and to advance, then that can cause you to become opposed to other identities, and now you're back into a conflictual situation. The only solution to that is to have a primary identity which is global, ultimately global. That's why at the end of the day, this speaks to the need of creating a whole earth ethic, basically. Our group, our primary group, should be the whole earth. And our smaller identities don't disappear, but they need to be coordinated for the benefit of the largest entity. If our main entity, the thing we care most about, is anything smaller than that, and Trump is a great example. My America first, he says. Uh, and of course, he'd have to add on any kind of world stage that if every nation tries to put themselves first, then that will work out well for the whole planet. He has to say that, or otherwise he'd just be immoral on the world uh, stage. But the fact is, is that if you 
have a smaller identity, no matter how large or small, if it's below the global planetary level, and that's the thing that you truly care about, then almost always that's going to be disruptive higher up the scale, disruptive for the planet. And that's Almost a, always? Is there instances in which it's not? Uh, theoretically, it is possible for you to do something which, which benefits you compared to everyone else in your group and benefits the group at the same time. That can happen, but it's very seldom because of the basic nature of trade-offs. In order to benefit the group, it requires doing certain things. And those things are typically very different than what it takes to maximize your relative position within the group. And I often say this, one of my favorite ways of, of uh, explaining this is with the game of Monopoly. We all know the game of Monopoly. So imagine playing that game, and of course the goal there is to capture all the real estate and drive everyone else bankrupt. That's the goal of, of Monopoly, is to maximize your relative advantage within the group. So imagine playing that game, and now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament. So now many games are in play, and the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their property the fastest. I've changed the rules of the game. And when I do this in front of an audience, I ask them, and I'll ask the viewers of this, of this, uh, of this video, so imagine playing that tournament. And isn't it the case that almost every decision you make playing in a tournament would be different than the decisions you would make playing the single game of Monopoly. There's your trade-off right there. That which is required for the group to function as a coordinated unit is different than that which is required for you to maximize your relative advantage within the group. So it's seldom the case that the same behavior would contribute to both goals. That's the sense in which, in which becoming, um, basically serving one identity is going to create problems for the higher, the still higher level good. So there's a very, very strong scientific argument for a whole earth ethic. And I think that all by itself is a profound insight that emerges from uh, evolution. Would that work if only America adopted, or only one country or one continent adopted the whole earth ethic? Would that still work if everybody else is acting selfishly? If only one did, no. And here's, here's another insight that um, when we talk about these large, large-scale things, like global things, we can get a lot of insight by shrinking them down and seeing their similarity to the dynamics of individuals and small groups. So I'll put your question. I'm going to shrink your question. How dare you? <laughs> in, a, in a small group, if there's only one cooperator and everyone else is a defector, uh, can cooperation succeed under those conditions? No, it cannot. But how many cooperators do you need? And game theory tells us, there's a whole literature on this, that actually you don't need too many cooperators to swing things in the direction of cooperation. Why is that? Well, for one thing, the cooperators can uh, cluster. They can interact with each other and avoid the depredations of non-cooperators. Uh, they can establish norms. And very often, people are willing to 
do something that's for, good, for the good of the group, as long as they can establish norms uh, that, uh, that punish non-cooperative behavior. It's like, uh, I'm not willing, here, here's a good example. Let's say that there's something dangerous that needs to be done by one person in order to save the group. Um, maybe someone will volunteer, but if they don't, let's draw straws. What's drawing straws? It randomizes the probability that you're going to be the one that has to do the dangerous task. It's fair. It's fair. So we'll probably agree to draw straws, even if we might not agree just to volunteer to, to do something. And so there's all kinds of things that can be established, even at the level of small groups, that can cause everyone to cooperate, um, even if you're starting out with a relatively small fraction of cooperators. Now we can, have, having, having thought about this at the small scale, we can enlarge it back up to the global scale. And you ask the question, if only one nation does this, will it work? No, it won't. But if there's a critical mass, if there's only one corporation, will it work? No. But if there's a critical mass, if there's B Corps, we just learned now that the Business Council, this, this group of, uh, of um, business CEOs from all of the global corporations has met and made a very important decision. They've decided that they'll no longer behave just to maximize short-term profits for their shareholders. They've decided that that actually maybe wasn't such a good idea. Maybe they should have some more sense of responsibility towards their stakeholders, not their shareholders, their employees, their supply chain, their customers. This fiction that by maximizing the profits for their shareholders, then that that's some invisible hand thing takes place and it works out for the global good is just bullshit, which we've known scientifically for a long time. Finally, the Business Council has decided maybe that's that's right. Maybe they should maybe they should do that. Okay, so now we have some people that are willing to function. Excuse me, some corporations that are willing to function in in cooperation. Or maybe something can come of that. And the same thing with nations. Is there something different about humans or different about our times that we need this whole earth ethic? Because looking outside right now, maybe there's a cricket and it's not thinking about the whole earth. It's just thinking, it might be thinking about how do I have sex and how do I selfishly, I don't care about my neighbors. I just want to, I want to procreate. Is there something about us now in our times that we need a whole earth ethic? Because that guy doesn't have a whole earth ethic. So what's different about us? Just our power, our nuclear power? So there's a number of important things to uh, say about that. By the way, is, is your questions going to be part of the video? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. good. Don't Hello, hello, testing, great, okay, then that one's there, and that's great. Great, that's your phone? No, that's Peter's. That's Peter's? my phone, yeah. Oh, that's your phone, okay, okay. Okay, so the question was, what the heck is different about us compared to some animals? Because I'm sure animals aren't thinking, how do I benevolently help the earth? They don't even have a conception of the earth, but yet you're advocating for a whole earth ethic for us. So there's, I think, two main things to say about that. There's a number of major ideas that are still quite prevalent, but are pre-Darwinian. Um, they're false ideas. Uh, one idea in economics is that there's some kind of natural order um, that uh, if everyone just pursues their self-interest, then they're led as if by an invisible hand 
uh, to benefit the common good. That implies that there's some kind of self-organized system that works well and that we unknowingly play our parts. So, uh, so uh, that's one idea. But there's a parallel idea in biology, which is sort of harmony in nature, that nature left by itself strikes some kind of balance. And so ecosystems, for example, have some sort of design or harmony uh, to them. That's a, an idea in biology which is quite similar to ideas in economics, and they're both profoundly false, false. Um, evolution doesn't make any, everything nice. And so if you look out there at the great outdoors, what you find is ecosystems, collection of species, and those species are all pursuing their adaptive strategies. All the crickets are trying to get laid, and the fish are trying to get laid, and the birds and the bees are trying to get laid, and, and survive, and so on and so forth. How does that settle out at the level of the whole collective, the ecosystem? Not necessarily harmonious. And nowadays, and so the balance of nature, that concept, is something which has been rejected. And what is more true is often called ecological regimes. And that, I think, is so evocative because if you look at what the word regime means in human social systems, when we call something a regime, there has to be a bit of stability about it. A regime is something which is going to hang around a while. We wouldn't call it a regime if it was just transient. So it's stable. But is it a good regime? A bad regime? Is it a corrupt regime? A despotic regime? An enlightened regime? Its stability does not tell us about its quality as some kind of system that we might want to live in. And so what you find in nature are regimes. There's collections of species that are kind of stable. But are they good? Do they recycle nutrients well or poorly? And what you find is, is that many ecological regimes, many communities are out there, are despotic in human terms. There's one dominant species that's bullying the other species, poisoning its environment, let us say. And the same is true for single species societies. Many social species, if you look at their societies, they're horrible societies in, in human terms. They're just dominated by individuals trying to, they're like the single game of, of monopoly. We'd never want to live in those, in those uh, societies. And so nature does not provide some kind of simplistic model of harmony and cooperation. Not single species social systems and not multi-species communities. There are in nature some ecosystems and some single-species communities that work extraordinarily well as societies. We have our microbiomes, and we also have the social insects that we've known about for a long time. Your ants, your bees, your termites, your wasps. Okay, those function as colonies extremely well because they've been selected as at the colony, at the colony level. And so I think, really, if we, go, if we search for a religious doctrine, it should be the Buddhist doctrine, the Four Noble Truths, which begins with life is suffering. If we look out there in human life and in the biological world, we see primarily suffering. <laughs> Why? Because of greed and striving. We're all striving to accomplish our lower-level goals 
And that's what's producing suffering higher up the scale. Is there a solution? Yes. Is there a path? Yes, there is. And what might that be? It is basically um, a recognition that uh, if we want to benefit the whole system, then we have to lose our attachment to the self, okay? And we have to work on behalf of the whole system. There's actually quite an impressive mapping of Buddhist thought onto evolutionary thought. That's a very interesting thing to, uh, to, uh, uh, to think about. Got him. Wow. <laughs> Holy, I wish, that, that on camera? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to this. So you said that, if I'm hearing correctly, there are regimes, in other words, stable groups, and just because they have lasted for a long time, it doesn't mean good. It doesn't mean they are good. And good is defined as the opposite of bad, and bad is defined as selfishly power-hungry. Something like if that. If you look at human history, you find uh, basically multi-level selection operating at various scales. What defines us as a species is our ability to cooperate at the scale of small groups. I think that uh, one of the amazing discoveries of recent evolutionary thought is that we are uh, a, a eusocial species, in a sense, or an ultra-social species. In some ways, we are like a beehive. Uh, that's how cooperative we are in small, in small, uh, small groups. So we achieved a degree of, of within-group harmony, uh, always protected, always guarded and vigilant. It's not as if we're noble savages, it's, it's that we're able to hold each other in check. We have a very strong sense that we're moral equals, basically, and that therefore you shouldn't beat up on me. That's a bad thing to do, and we have the collective ability to gang up on would-be bullies, and so now that puts us into team mode. And the whole concept of morality, the whole concept of morality could be understood as a set of mechanisms that cause us to function cooperatively in relatively small groups. And so, I mean, nevertheless, when it came to between-group interactions, anything goes. And anything means not just warfare, but trade and, and forms of cooperation and you know, the full range of ecological interactions that take place between species also took place among small human groups, including warfare, big-time warfare. So, so competition between groups, violent or otherwise, is joined at the hip with cooperation within groups. So suffering didn't go away, it just took place more at the level of between-group interactions than within-group interactions. Can you explain that suffering didn't go away, just took place at the level of between-group interactions? So the individual wasn't suffering? What do you mean? Well, individuals, there's a, there, one person involved in this, uh, Richard Rangham, who's one of the anthropologists who studied chimpanzees for a long, long time, has a new book out called The Goodness Paradox, uh, a great book. And uh, um, Not as good as this view of life. Thank you, thank you. Um, but, um, and he talks, among other things, about self-domestication which is a fascinating topic in its own right. Uh, when we domesticate species, we select them mostly for their tameness. 
Uh, but do you know a lot of other stuff comes along with it? And there's a whole fascinating story about how selecting for the behavior of tameness also selects for all sorts of physiological um, uh, traits. So, uh, um, and that's a that's kind of another uh, story. But in the same in the same way that uh, we've domesticated many species, uh, we've also domesticated ourselves. Basically, we've selected ourselves for tameness. Another way to retell the story that I just told is that in a group where people are able, there's a relatively equal balance of power, people to hold each other in check, then if you're a big bastard that's trying to get your way, ultimately we'll just kill you. And before that we'll have other sanctions which are going to limit your reproductive success and that's like selecting ourselves for tameness. Okay, so now we are docile in a way um, um, that chimps aren't. So uh, Rangham, who should know, says that if you look at the level of aggression within groups, the kind of interaction where I just fly into a rage and just beat the shit out of you, and we're a member of the same community, that happens in a chimp community a hundred or a thousand times more frequently than in a small-scale society. If you live within a small-scale human society, you'd never see that. You see people getting along pretty well. And so that means they're not imposing suffering on each other within groups very much. Very much. Yet they're still suffering when we go on a raid to another group and then we kill somebody and steal their women and we do all that kind of, or maybe exterminate them entirely. So yes, there's suffering and it's self-imposed suffering, but it's being imposed at the level of groups. Now if you look at the last 10,000 years of human history, and here my colleague Peter Turchin takes over with his book, Ultra Society, um, the last 10,000 years of... of uh, What's it called again? It's called Ultra Society, How 10,000 Years of Warfare Turned Us into the Greatest Cooperators on Earth. Uh, what you find is basically the same thing at ever-increasing scales. With the advent of agriculture, um, and the fact that we're a cultural species, the whole genetic evolution of cultural evolution, and we actually need to be getting to that because it gets to such things as archetypes and memes and the, the whole fact that in our species there's a cultural stream of evolution in addition to a genetic stream of evolution, and all of that is uh, a matter of cooperation also. So if we didn't evolve to be a cooperative species, we could, we could not have evolved the ability to transmit large amounts of learned information across generations through symbolic systems, systems of symbolic thought. So everything distinctive about our species, including our capacity for symbolic thought and our ability to transmit large amounts of information across cultures, all of that was only made possible thanks to the fact that we became highly cooperative. We cooperated in physical activities and we cooperated in mental activities. As a result, we began to generate our own resources, scale of human society increased, and now that's been a process um, that's taken us to the present moment of huge societies of hundreds of millions and even billions of individuals operating in a way that is um, amazingly cooperative. On an average day, if you go out, luckily for us, you won't see people imposing a lot of suffering. Well, you won't see anything because there's nothing for miles out here. <laughs> so. So, um, 
So another answer to your question is that the scale of society has become so big that, that basically we're now having a planetary impact that we didn't have before. There's no escape from that. And so that, of course, is, is something that uh, cultural evolution has been building towards. Uh, but uh, now, more than ever before, we are uh, having a planetary impact that requires us to have a whole Earth ethic. Before that, there would be externalities, and the, and they would not be quite as dominating as they are now. But now we're we're really uh, in in a situation where if we don't act at the planetary scale, then we're toast. Uh, so that is uh, what's in front of us. I'm just going to try and restate what you said. We grew up in small social groups, so we've been selected somewhat for cooperative behavior. Now, our small groups became medium-sized groups and then large groups, and now we're so technologically powerful that our mistakes are causing the destruction of the entire planet, and therefore we need to adopt a new ethic. Is that a good summation, or is there something missing? It's not a bad summation. A new ethic is basically a more global ethic. I think that... uh, uh, quite an important thing to say because it's in contrast to uh, orthodox economic thought. If you take someone like Friedrich Hayek, um, he would say that, uh, that uh, who was actually very evolutionary for his day, that there was uh, basically we have our tribal values, you know, we operate in small groups and we have that whole kind of system, but a modern economic system has to be something very different, um, and that's what the market economy is. Uh, and that's where the invisible hand comes from, the idea that uh, we can all pursue our lower-level self-interest and it'll magically uh, benefit the common uh, good. Now, although market economies are huge and very important and so on, although they have to be much better, much better regulated, make no mistake, um, really what it seems is that um, we need to take those tribal values that, um, um, and we need to scale them up scale them up, they're not different. They just have to be operating at a larger scale, at the level of nations and global corporations within the global village, for example. So their interactions are a little different than um, interactions of individuals in a group. As I said earlier in this conversation, let's take these big problems and shrink them down, see what they look like for individuals in a smaller group. Then we can expand them back up. And what you see, they're the same problems. And so, so we need to, we, we, we have to have a moral system. That moral system has to include all of us. It has to be a planetary moral system. We have to be solid citizens ourselves. And then we have to hold others in check. And we have to do that as nations and, and multinational corporations. And we use the genius of, the, of technology and the internet to give us a nervous system. Uh, uh, we need it. It's essential for, for that. Uh, yes, there has to be market processes, but they have to be much better regulated and oriented towards the common, uh, common good. So it's the same way of thinking, the same values. Uh, the great challenge is to expand their scale. This may sound foolish, but why is it a challenge if we were selected for it? Why is it natural to us? That is... Um, Actually, a deeper question than you might think, or maybe you thought, I already thought it was a deep question, but... Uh, I think all my questions are deep questions. <laughs> here's, I think, a, a, a fascinating uh, uh, 
question that might seem tangential but can relate. Uh, do women have breast? Uh, do women have instincts for breastfeeding? Isn't it curious that when bottle feeding became available, so many women jumped to say, "Well, that's a good idea," and they didn't have any sort of instinct for breastfeeding. It, it seems. Well, that actually makes sense when you realize that there was never any alternative. <laughs> so why do you need an instinct for something where there's no alternative? There's a sense where uh, life in small groups, do we have instincts for, for living in, in small groups? In a sense, yes, but there's also a sense in which there was never any alternative until the last 10,000 years. And so now, and this is what I spend most of my time doing, scientifically, is studying groups of all sizes, including small groups. But do you know that if you look at small groups in modern life, and you ask how well do they function, um, they vary hugely. They don't all function well. If you put people in a small group, they don't always function. They don't just click like that as if we have... As if we have... As if we're naturally predisposed to it. What's that? As if we're naturally predisposed. As if we're naturally... Now, we are, make no mistake. When we get to archetypes and, and evolutionary psychology, where we, this is, I mean, it's not a black and white thing. Yes, we do have instincts that are brought into play. We do have a strong sense of morality, for example, of egalitarianism. We don't like to be pushed around. Uh, when we see misbehavior, we tend to punish it, at least some of us do. And these things are, to some extent, sort of out of the box. Okay, so we have a very complicated, evolved, psychology that includes the psychology of moral systems and so on and so forth. But for some reason, that is not enough for when you compose a group in, in, uh, in modern life for it just to, just to immediately click into place. Um, uh, one reason is, of course, is that we've always been playing the multi-level game. Our evolved psychology basically puts us in the position of, of functioning in cooperative mode or exploitation mode. There's, there's more than one way to survive and reproduce, by cooperating or by exploiting. So everyone, to some extent, has plan A and plan B. And when you see a group isn't functioning well, it's often because some individuals within the group are getting... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. their way. Working for them, it's just not working for everyone else. And so that's the dynamic of multi-level selection, weighing in favor of the lower-level disruptive process. Basically, people are playing and winning the single game of Monopoly. They're not playing in a Monopoly tournament. But it's sufficiently unstated, unexamined, basically, that you can go to any kind of group and you can examine it. You could look at the variation and then you could make it function better by by basically cultivating a more explicit awareness about evolution, multi-level selection, and so on and so forth, to to then um, um, get the group to function in in um, monopoly tournament mode more than single game of monopoly mode. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. I have a couple questions. One is a slightly Jungian question. Jung was asked, I think it was Carl Jung, why can't I just do what's good for me? at the expense of others. And then Carl Jung's like, what, give me an example. He, can't, he said you can't do that. He said that you ha- the more you realize that you're inextricably linked with the world, well, actually, that's correct. The more you realize that, the better your life will be. And the person said, why? Why can't I just eat Cheetos and play video games? And then he said, that's not actually good for you. That's good for you maybe for one week or maybe two weeks or maybe a month. But the longer you look out in time, you have to take into account other people because you're going to interact with them. And then you also have to take into account your environment because you're going to interact with your environment. And so you have to act in what would traditionally be seen as noble or what you call virtuous if you want to benefit yourself across time. So it just matters, like you were talking about the corporations, if they prioritize short-term profits, that not, that's not necessarily good. But you included an, a key word, short-term. So what if you think about long-term? So then the question is, how long is long? But my question is, in this union sense, what he was saying, you look out across time. Let's say your lifespan, let's say 60 years, maybe even 100, you incorporate your 
grandchildren into, into it, then is it not true that the, self, the, more, the more selfishly we act, the more it jives with what's good for the group because I can't just screw you. That's actually not good for me. I'm going to have a bad reputation. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. You're attributing to Jung something which actually gets replicated again and again and again. Uh, this idea that the, uh, the most enlightened form of self-interest is cooperation. That if you're selfish in the pejorative sense of the word, benefiting yourself at the expense of others, well, that's not even going to work out for you over the long term, so really you should be a cooperator. And so that's a line of thought which has been replicated again and again and again. And of course, it's very normative. Uh, uh, most recently, uh, I've encountered this in the writing of Alexei de Tocqueville, the French social theorist who visited America in the 1830s and commented, compared his nation of France with the new democratic uh, experiment. And his phrase was self-interest greatly understood. And it was quite fascinating because he, he, was, he actually was noting a cultural trend. It was very prescient that um, in the old aristocratic days when people talked about virtue and sacrifice and things like that, they actually did not frame it in terms of enlightened self-interest. But now, Tocqueville said, with all of the democratic revolutions in America and in France and so on, increasingly everything was being uh, framed in terms of self-interest. We don't do anything unless we see it as a form of self-interest. And that being the case, we have to distinguish between self-interest rightly understood, which is cooperation, as opposed to self-interest wrongly understood, which leads to all kind of shitty outcomes. Outcome. So Tocqueville was saying exactly the same thing that you represented Jung as saying. And it's been said a thousand times before. So basically... Is there something wrong with it? It's a, hold on. It's an, argument of, it's an argument for cooperation framed in terms of self-interest. And in order to do that, it must distinguish between, for, between different kinds of self-interest, the rightly understood kind and the wrongly understood kind. Even Ayn Rand, the high priestess of selfishness, distinguished between rational and irrational forms of self-interest. You can't talk about self-interest on, on any kind of stage without actually making this distinction and talking about moral forms of self-interest as opposed to immoral forms of self-interest. So, so it's, it's good advice, you might say, that if everyone took it, then they'd be cooperate, okay? But really, it does not describe... I mean, it's, it, it fails in a number of ways. Other than a, other than a good advice, a feel-good story, a nice aspirational narrative, it fails in a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of, of, of ways. And let me try to begin to, to uh, uh, list them. For one thing, it ignores the fact that evolution is based on relative fitness. When it comes to evolution, it does not matter how well you survive and reproduce in absolute terms, only compared to others in your vicinity. And the whole appeal of enlightened self-interest, as you described it, through Jung, I described it through Tocqueville, it's basically framed in terms of absolute self-interest. If you're self-interested rightly understood, this will work out better for you than if it's self-interest wrongly understood. You, if you do this, will do better than you if you don't do that. That's not relative fitness. The question is, how well am I going to do compared to my competitors, others in my 
vicinity. That's the question we should be asking? No, it's the question of the way the human mind is. And so when people actually operate, very often they're trying to get positional advantage. Okay, that's how we operate. And it's not wrong. I mean, basically, we do need to worry about our relative fitness. That means that if I, what's enlightened is to make sure that we all do something that's cooperative. Okay, we're, we're all working towards cooperative solutions. Make no mistake about that. But when you look at how the human mind actually operates, it, you, there's two things you can say about it. It privileges p- positional advantage and short-term gain as opposed to long-term gain. We've all learned about discounting the future, that a benefit now is going to be more important than that same benefit delayed in time. Why is it? It's because I might not live that long. And so especially when you put people in precarious situations, existentially insecure situations, their minds are going to privilege immediate gain. And if you tell them... Immediate relative gain. Immediate relative gain. And if you tell them they'll be better in the long term, bullshit as far as what they need to do and what their minds are telling them to do in order to survive another day. In order to survive another day. And one of my colleagues, Robert Frank, an economist, a well-regarded economist, um, wrote a book called The Darwin Economy in which he makes this very... Uh, point. He says, uh, 100 years from now, I hope it doesn't take that long, Darwin, not Adam Smith, will be regarded as the father of economics. And the main difference is that economists, as I've just said, they posit the rational actor, homo economicus, the utility maximizer, that only wants to maximize its absolute utility, not in reference to anyone else, as if we only want to be wealthy in some absolute sense, not in comparison anyone else. Well, no one works like that. The only reason you want to have a $1,000 suit is to look better than someone with a $500 suit. Life is about relative advantage, and yet economic theory is not framed that, that way. So that's the sense in which an appeal to enlightened self-interest, it's, it's a nice aspirational message, but really it, 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 it misses all of the complications that we've just been talking about. Do you mean to say it's correct and that if we followed it, it would be great, it's just not motivating enough? You said it sounds nice in terms of aspirations or inspirations, but it's not... It, means it's not, it doesn't we, capture... Think of it in game theory terms. And this, this, this holds for all efforts to make people more cooperative, whether you frame it in terms of self-interest or not. If we encourage people to be altruistic or cooperative, and we motivate it in any way that moves them. It might be an appeal to self-interest, or it might be some other appeal to empathy or whatever. So then they go out in the world, and they're nice. But it turns out that the people with whom they interact are not necessarily nice. So what happens then? What happens on the basis of the advice that you gave them? They're going to become losers because they're, you, you release them into a social environment in which, in which cooperation is not the most successful strategy. 
And so we have to be smarter than that. It's actually unethical to counsel someone to be nice and then put them in a social environment where niceness doesn't pay. So this is why we have to be much more systemic. We have to create social environments that actually causes niceness to win the Darwinian contest. And if we don't do that, we go, uh, my colleagues and I call this declawing the cat, the alley cat. You don't take an alley cat, remove its claws, and put it back in an alley. Why would you do something like that? And why would the cat actually take your advice? And yet, if you create a social environment that actually protects niceness, which is what a moral system does, then most people will take a look at that and they'll say, okay, it's safe to be nice now, and they'll be safe. Then they'll be nice. Are you using nice as a synonym for virtue? Or are you using nice just, let me give Cooperative give. strategies. Nice means is that I'm going to do well by you. I'll be a cooperator. Because it could also mean courage, standing up for what you think is right, not being a pushover. All of those things. Giving when you think you should. Nice is not like a patsy strategy. Nice can be, there's tough forms of niceness, but but no, it's what's what's best for all of us. My wife coming. That's all right, that's all right. Do you want to see if you can get that fly? Sure. (laughs) Because you're an expert at that. So I think think that's your true call. Actually, it's my wife who's the real expert, but... uh, and you know, she studies birds, and she actually catches birds in nets like this. And yeah. It's like Quidditch. It's just amazing. I was wondering about the books. What's that? The bird books. Yeah. I was Why don't we take a little break? And uh... You mentioned that we would need to take our tribalism and apply it to the globe. Now, when I hear people say what's wrong with us, it's tribalism. That the left, the radical left, and the alt-right are taking us to our tribal roots. But you're saying tribalism might be the answer. So are we using the same word to describe two different things, or do you have a different view? I, I mean, there's many ways to skin the semantic cat, but uh, I think that tribalism is just fine. As long as we regard ourselves as part of a global tribe, then there we are. We do need a strong sense of us, but let it be everyone, and also uh, um, nature as, as well. So let that be our tribe. I think that might be one of the most intuitive ways to, to, um, to describe it. And we're so flexible about our social identities. That's another thing that needs to be said. All of our social identities are socially constructed. We imagine our groups, and then we function within them. And so that means it's not so much of a stretch of the imagination to think of ourselves as part of a uh, global tribe. Not hard. You mentioned that you had some problems with the social constructionists, and I want to know, first of all, if you could define what social constructivism is, and then what do you see as its problems? Well, I wrote an essay a while back called Evolutionary Social Constructivism, uh, which said that social constructivism isn't wrong. Uh, It just has to be approached from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, Most social constructivists see themselves as... um, opposed to evolutionary thinking. This goes back to the days of sociobiology when Ed Wilson uh, wrote the book Sociobiology in 1975. And he was branded as uh, um, being a genetic determinist. And the alternative to sociobiology was social constructivism. It was the idea that we are a cultural species, that we uh, um, uh, were very flexible, Basically, we're capable of coming up with any behavior, any social 
arrangement, and this was thought to be in opposition to sociobiology. Uh, now what we can say is, yes, we are a cultural species, um, and we do construct our social environments. So we are very flexible, not infinitely flexible, but very flexible in what we can become as individuals and, and societies, but all of that is a matter of cultural evolution. Um, and so we need to expand evolutionary thinking beyond genetic evolution to include cultural evolution. And it's at that point that social constructivism will be seen as an evolutionary topic. And the term niche construction, which is a term that originated within evolutionary theory, is basically another word for social construction, at least in the human human case. So, yes, we are a cultural species. We do construct our societies, but please don't think that as, as something which is somehow outside the orbit of evolutionary thinking. What are the problems that you have with postmodernists, if any? I think that uh, I actually look for um, the baby in the bathwater of most traditions. One phrase that I like from an evolutionist named A.J. Kane is that uh, only the simplest mind can believe that in a great controversy one side is mere folly. And so when smart people disagree, then there's probably a baby somewhere in the bathwater. Uh, but then, of course, there's also the bathwater. And so uh, postmodernism, social constructivism, all of these things, I think, um, a part of the baby, what's legitimate, is uh, what's called a thick description of a given culture. Recognition that a culture is something which is very com complicated and has to be understood in some kind of uh, contextual way. And all of that is great because it's true. So I love that part. But also, there's in some ways, a, uh, often the, the bathwater is a denial of anything that can count as objective reality. That there's no such thing as objective facts, for example. That uh, the, the kind of body of facts that we associate with science um, has no more um, authority than any other cultural uh, construction. And so I think that when we talk about now in the post-truth society and and fake news, and a president that basically lies every day of his life, um, is in some sense attributed to the postmodern tradition, which became anti-science. Anti and you know, in, in, uh, um, in the humanities, and anthropology, and, and linguistics, and, and cultural studies, uh, very much cleaves along lines of, uh, of a branch that is uh, more or less science-friendly, and a, and a branch which is uh, science uh, uh, unfriendly. And, and so what we've lost, what we've lost, not everywhere, but um, um, in, many, in many contexts, is this idea that there's, um, there's facts of the world that we have to, that we have to discover and, and, and hold each other uh, accountable to. Um, I have another quote from the Dalai Lama that I love, which is that um, um, anyone who defies the authority of empirical evidence is not worthy of critical engagement in a dialogue. 
If you're just making stuff up and if you're denying what's out there, you're not worth talking to, is what that, is what that means. And so I need, we need to recover the idea that there is a world out there. It's independent of our own meaning systems, our own symbolic systems, and that creates a challenge of somehow our meaning systems, whatever they are, whether they're religious or not, everyone has one. Um, and it is not a direct reflection of the real world, but nevertheless, there is a real world out there, and we can apprehend it using the tools that we typically associate with science. And so, and so that has to be part of the part of the um, operating rules for our for our discourse. It has to be science based, but it also has to be smart about how difficult it is for us to um, apprehend the the real world and how tempted we are at a deep psychological level in making stuff up that supports our world views. There's a deep statement there about epistemology, basically the nature of knowledge from an evolutionary perspective. Evolution has, has transformative things to say about, about ethics and morality and epistemology, all of the major branches of philosophy. What do you think of the postmodern inspired fields like women's studies, gender studies, sex, fat studies, sexual studies. What do you think of the idea that they're putting forth that separates us into different groups and then therefore our tribal circuitry, quote unquote tribal circuitry, is being hijacked and now it's us versus them in different groups? I know we've talked about this earlier. What do you think of that? Is that true? What is this tribal circuitry that's being triggered? Can you first expand on the tribal circuitry that some evolutionary biologists talk about? Obviously, you can't speak for them, but whatever you think that term means. What is this tribal circuitry, and how are these other disciplines utilizing that for something that's not necessarily good for the whole? So again, let's talk about the baby before we talk about the bathwater. The baby of these identities is that they're pointing out that the mainstream worldview is in fact extremely provincial. It's the worldview of a certain privileged culture, say white European male culture, is interpreting reality for everyone when in fact it's extremely provincial and ultimately self-serving. And you know, I think you know that uh, there's an acronym that's been coined, uh, WEIRD, a white, educated, industrial, uh, rich, and democratic, which is the dominating culture. That's what I think you're referring to as Western culture. And it interprets itself as human nature and the human condition. And uh, this term was coined by my colleague Joseph Henrich at Harvard University, and it's getting a lot of attention now because so much research that's done primarily in Western nations um, and in, with college students, so even when it's done internationally, it's done in those segments of the population that have thoroughly bought into Western market uh, economies. Uh, so much psychological research and research of all kinds has been done on this narrow slice of humanity. and and it's not general. It's not general at all. And so it's a major initiative now, which is gaining steam, is that if you want to say something about human nature, you cannot confine it to weird 
People. People, weird societies. So just now on Twitter, you get, for example, a result that came out of research is that, you know, in any population, X percent are cooperators, Y percent are defectors, whatever. And, um, <laughs> did you get it? Oh, I thought I did. Man, I should have. No, anyhow. That's all right. That's um, right. So you're saying that there's research on Twitter? Sorry. Not on Twitter. It's being reported on, on Twitter. This was thought to be very, very general. Many, many studies show that there's the same kind of breakdown of cooperators and defectors in, uh, in uh, hold on a minute, <laughs> in, uh, this is too terribly distracting, isn't it? No, it's, it's okay. You can do it. Come on, little guy. All you have to do is move a little bit. And I'll get you. Come on, come on. Got him. So there is some research that's popularized on Twitter as being also the Also the ultimatum game, the famous ultimatum game. I give you $10 and you can share a portion with a second person. And that second person, their only choice is to accept your offer or to, or to reject it, in which case nobody gets anything. And economic wisdom held that the first person should, should share as little as possible, but knowing that the second person would take anything over nothing at all. That's the economic wisdom. Uh, the result of the actual experiment is, is that no, people have a sense of fairness. And unless the offer is fair, the person would rather have nothing than to accept an unfair offer. And so this was the new normal, was that that's the way Homo sapiens is. Well, come to find out, and this is actually the work of Joseph Henrik, is that when he played that same ultimatum game in societies around the world, including small-scale societies, he found tons of variation. All kinds of variation that was unexplained. And so that was what it meant to go beyond weird societies to sample the richness of human cultural diversity. So if we get back to identity politics, what you have is basically members of the population which are marginalized. They might come from cultural traditions historically that are not part of Western culture, or they might come from Western cultural traditions but marginalized people, such as women or, or gays or, or anyone who's being shamed or whatever. Okay, and their experience is very different, and they want you to know that. So basically, they are claiming authentically that the world as seen through the eyes of privileged people is not actually the world that they experience. And they're also claiming justice, that they, they need to be more fully participants in a moral Society and both of those things can be uh, correct. So that's a pretty big baby in the bathwater of identity uh, uh, politics. Um, if it becomes highly divisive, there has to be some sense in which there's a we that we can become a part of. And if you lose sight of that, then it becomes only conflictual. So there must be some working towards um, a um, a, uh, uh, a larger scale of, of, uh, of cooperation. So. Can you describe this tribal circuitry? Well, what is it when certain biologists say, there's a tribal part of our brain 
And when we're divided up into groups, we are hijacking that or we're turning it on and now we're against them. What is that? What do they mean? Well, I think that I would be more or less in agreement with what many people would say to that, that um, we're such a group living species that uh, we're always looking for who's us, who's the, what, what is the group that I'm in and that I'm supposed to be a member of and supposed to be cooperating. That's what, um, uh, and we all, we all need that just in order to function in any particular, um, in any particular context. Uh, the salience of the tribe grows with the stakes, basically, for survival and, and reproduction. So if you're, uh, if you're in a really existentially insecure situation where your own life is threatened, for example, or the life of your people is threatened, then that psychology of being a member of a, a group and that group being threatened is, becomes more and more and more uh, salient. And my colleague Michel Gelfand um, uh, wrote a book called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers. <laughs> she does research on, on a continuum of cultural variation which from tight to loose. So a tight culture is one that has very strong norms that are enforced by punishment. If you're a member of that culture, then you are expected to do certain things. And if you don't, then there will be big consequences. Okay? A loose culture is much more flexibility in what you can do. A lot more elbow room in what you want to do to explore your own options and so on. And uh, that continuum from tight to loose more or less is adapted to an environmental continuum of existential security. So if life is safe and secure, life is good, nobody's threatening us, then why shouldn't we explore our options? The optimal social arrangement for a safe and secure environment is a loose culture. But if it's really life or death, then we have to have extreme solidarity and what you do, I mean, you've got to do this. You have to be part of us and so on and so forth. You also have to be prepared to sacrifice your life if, if necessary. And so you're not free to, to do this or, or, or that. And so um, that cultural continuum and its underlying environmental basis explains a lot. It also explains that the more um, things go wrong in modern life, existentially insecure things are, the more we become tight in our psychological uh, orientation. And we find it very difficult to be flexible, accepting of other positions, and so on and so forth. So paradoxically, if we want to cultivate a safe and secure environment, and a loose culture, which in some ways I think you could say a loose culture is better than a tight culture because of the environmental condition that a safe and secure environment is better than a dangerous environment. So, uh, so one reason why things have become worse culturally and more divisive culturally is because they've become more existentially insecure. And that, I think this explains, for example, when we talk about the right um, and nationalistic movements and so on and so forth. I mean, the reasons are plain enough. The members of many societies feel that they're not, they're not sharing the benefits of the, of the society. If you're 
in France or England or or whatever, and you're just a an average bloke, and the and the, and and then you see immigrants coming in and taking jobs, and you don't have a very good job. It's, well, it's not working for you. The global European Union is not working for for you. Why shouldn't you stand up for something that's more recognizable as your as your uh, people? So I think in many ways, and this is not original. Uh, a lot of the problems associated with this fragmentation is is based on such things as extreme inequality. The global order, including the European Union and 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 all of that, it's not it's not it's not working well for the average. Why should they be invested in it? What's in it for them? And so there's some sense in which the solution has to be um, a uh, uh, result in in some of these global problems of of uh, income inequality, of um, unregulated capitalism, if we don't solve that problem, then we shouldn't expect these solutions to these other problems. You mentioned existential security, and you're saying that the higher the level of inequality, the less existential security we have? Yes. And that's in part because, back to relative fitness, it doesn't really matter that we're affluent. We compare ourselves with others, there's a lot of research knowing that uh, how how good you feel with your about your life, it depends on y- your lot compared to others. A lot of ills are attributed to. So how do we get over that if that's so ingrained in us? And also, why was that selected for if we were selected in these small groups where cooperation was the norm? Well, in those groups, there was there was a um, wasn't the kind of unfair inequality that uh, that exists today. In the first place, there's a strong sense of egalitarianism where we're all equal. I'm not better than you. And, and also, there wasn't a lot of difference in material wealth at that time. And if someone was given a leadership role, it was based on their contribution. To the group, yes, you'll be your leader, and yet that might make you wealthier, and so on and so forth. But unless you're actually serving us in some, in some sense, then, then uh, we won't follow you anymore. Much more bottom-up control of those societies than you might, than you might think. And even big man societies and societies that look hierarchical, actually, it was like a, a, almost like a banking system in which the wealth of the society was accumulated, in certain families, for example, or temples or something like that. But it was shared out. It was almost like a distribution. And that worked in the small scale? System. That worked for those times and, and, uh, and, and places. So, so um, if you look at modern nations and uh, the ones that work best in the Nordic countries come up again and again as the nations that function best in, in uh, modern life. And whenever this gets discussed, then Americans are, insist that there's no way that you can compare those countries with America. They're too homogenous, all this kind of stuff. Which is yeah, why, is that, why is that not a good critique, that they're too homogenous? Well, homogeneity, I mean, might play some role, but it's small compared to the equality that's built into those in the first place, they're not culturally that homogenous. I, I, 
I studied Norway quite extensively. Norway is a mountainous country. And mountainous countries always have the effect of cultural diversity, right? Look at New Guinea, every right. valley. And so if you look at Norway two or 300 years ago, there were so many little dialects in each and one of those little mountains, they weren't even speaking the same language. Someone from southern Norway couldn't understand someone in northern. How's that culturally homogenous? And you had the Vikings and you had all these things, they're all warring with each other. So it makes little sense to say that there's some mysterious kind of cultural um, homogeneity. Uh, again, it's not as if that there's, there's nothing to that, but for the most part, it has to do with the fact that there's that they've managed to scale up the uh, equality. And, um, and uh, uh, well, there's much to say, but we can leave it there for the moment. Earlier, we were doing a thought experiment where we were trying to solve the large-scale problems by, by imagining it in a small scale. Well, if we were to imagine our, some of our problems with regard to income inequality on the global scale, then we shrink it down to the small scale, and we think about how did this work when it was with tribes. But then we said, we just established, actually that doesn't work because there are no examples of it working. Uh, there are no examples of extreme inequality within a group of Well, what you find people. in very small scale societies is that they don't allow that kind of income disparity. If somebody has a windfall or like, especially like they kill a large game or something like that, it's scrupulously shared. But it was with the advent of agriculture that that began to change. And, uh, and as a result, societies became more despotic. This is something that Peter Turchin um, chronicles in his book, Ultra, um, Ultra Society. So that whenever you do have an, a, a large imbalance of power, then it does tend to corrupt the ability to cooperate within that uh, society. And that will happen. It happens all the time. There's an inevitable tendency for it to happen. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And the main preventative for that is between group competition. A despotic society can work to a degree, but there's a point at which you cannot just bully people into cooperating with you. And so if there's some other society over here that offers a better deal to its members, and they will collectively beat the more despotic society. And that's true to this day. If you measure modern societies for their degree of equality, there's books like The Spirit Level. These are famous books in political science. Um, Why Nations Fail. These are books that show that nations vary in their degree of inclusiveness. And the inclusive ones work better than the what about the Nordic countries? As far as I know, their laws when it comes to immigration is tighter than America's. So first we have to look at the societies as they... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic. 
your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Just as societies, before we talk about the very recent problem of, of uh, immigration, and I'm not romanticizing those countries. In fact, there's a very close affinity between the Nordic countries and Germany. And there's a strong thread of racial superiority and the kind of the Aryan uh, mentality that exists in those um, in those uh, countries. And so there's a whole modern set of problems about immigration and also how much a country can can. Um, accommodate immigrants. So, I mean, these are real issues that have to be taken, taken very seriously. The point I want to make about Norway or the Scandinavian countries, and not just them, but you can count Switzerland, and Switzerland is not culturally homogenous. They speak four languages within the same nation. The Netherlands, Japan, pick any country that works well, often with histories which were highly unequal. Take Japan as a feudal. So take England as a feudal society before it became democratic. But if you understand why they're working well, it's because they have actually managed to have a, a relatively egalitarian relationship, which in a modern context means that basically labor, capital, and government all have a lot of power and work cooperatively, collaboratively for the common good. That's what you see, a strong labor sector, strong capital sector, strong government sector, and a cooperative spirit that for what are we going to do as a, as a nation. Those are the ingredients, and they're the same shrinking back down as a group whose members have a relatively equal balance of power and are trying to do well for the whole group. That's what's needed. And that's what actually describes the best periods of American history, the New Deal, the so-called era of good feelings in the 1980s. I mean, there really is a formula that's not hard to understand about the need for equality to, for, for cooperation to, to work at any scale. Is there a connection between a whole earth ethic or this cooperation idea that you're putting forward, <laughs> cooperation essentially, is there a connection between that and communism, as some people might say. I know that, now I don't know too much about this, but I know that some people were suggesting that group selection, group favorite selection, is evidence towards communism being the correct political mode versus capitalism, which sounds to be more individual selection. Yeah, so uh, I think that that's actually not the right way to think about it. And uh, Why is that not correct? 
Because every system, whether it's a socialist system or a capitalist system, is or should be designed to work well as a system. And so capitalism claims to be better as a system for the benefit of all. Capitalism does not say, who cares about the benefit of all? I'm just going to get rich. Right? And so in that sense, everyone's a socialist in the sense that if they argue for some kind of political philosophy, it has to work well at the society level. Otherwise you couldn't call it, you couldn't even discuss it if it if you weren't presenting something that worked well at the societal level. And so what we have to do is we have to compare the societies that have been guided by capitalism and societies that have been guided by communism. And we have to ask how well do they work as societies. And what you discover there is that uh, the socialist experiments actually work very poorly, very poorly, all the way up to Venezuela uh, in, the current, in the current time. So why do they work so badly? For two main reasons. Uh, and here I'm relying on a, a great scholar of economics and, and, uh, and political theory named Jeffrey Hodgson in the, um, in the, um, in the UK. Um, so one reason they work poorly is that is centralized planning. Uh, they rejected the idea of, of uh, market economies, which uh, Hayek got some things right, basically. And the market economy is a, a great way for adjusting prices um, to accommodate values to, a, um, to a, um, a degree. And if you actually try to plan everything centrally, it will never work because the society is too complex. So here complexity comes in as, a, as an important body of theory in addition to, uh, in addition to uh, evolution. Centralized planning doesn't work because the systems are too complex for any group of experts to work out and implement a grand plan. Centralized planning doesn't work. It doesn't even work at the level of a small company, not to speak of, an, of a nation. And the other problem with socialism is that power gets concentrated in the hands of a, an elite, a small group of elites, and whenever you get an imbalance of power, then basically you get that kind of corruption where they, they run the country for their benefit, not for the benefit of the whole country. So between power being concentrated and centralized planning, um, all, social, all experiments that are called socialist have failed miserably. <laughs> okay. So now let's look at capitalism. And uh, they also fail. Do they fail as badly? Well, I don't care. They fail in ways that we need to correct. And they fail basically by uh, buying into the invisible hand metaphor, by thinking that the pursuit of lower level self-interest in an unregulated economy, if we just try to maximize our wealth, and corporations just trying to maximize their, their, their profits. That's their only responsibility. As Friedman said, the only social responsibility of a company is to earn profits for its uh, shareholders. That's a recipe for disaster. So both of those don't work. And now we have to, then we can discuss what can, can work.
when we were talking about existential security, you were saying that there's tight and loose, which I associate with totalitarianism and liberalism. Is that a wrong association? No, that'd be a pretty good one. Okay. So that uh, is... Okay, is strong existential security needed for liberalism, or does liberalism produce existential security? I would like to think that... Um, uh, what we associate with liberalism and democratic governance and so on can function in very harsh environments. In some ways, it's needed more than ever. And uh, actually, there's great um, um, uh, stories to be, to be told there. I mentioned the book Why Nations Fail by uh, Asimoglu and, uh, and uh, Robinson. And uh, they begin with the story of the uh, colonization of the New World. And... Um, uh, Let's see how much detail do I want to uh, tell the story. So when the, when the Spaniards and the Portuguese colonized Central and South America, they encountered uh, very hierarchical societies, societies that were already despotic, you might, you might say. And so they could succeed just by lopping off the head of these hierarchical societies and becoming the rulers. Uh, they didn't have to bring any women. They didn't have to bring any farmers. They could just become the rulers of these hierarchical um, societies. And, um, and, the, and the British, when they colonized North America, they wanted to do the same thing. And so the Jamestown colony came without any farmers, without any women. They were going to conquer the Indians and get gold and do the same thing. Well, that wasn't going to work for a whole bunch of reasons. And so the next thought was to import British laborers and recreate a feudal Society. They were housed in barracks. Uh, they couldn't run away on pain of death, and um, and so that didn't work either because actually they could run away and there was nothing to do about it. And so then this little colony was forced by circumstances, by adverse circumstances. So this was very existentially insecure. They were forced to become more fair in order to survive. Only when they instituted rules that gave a better deal to everyone in the colony, could it survive as a colony? So there's a sense in which democratic governance and equality and so on actually was necessary for survival in harsh uh, environments. What was this better deal? Well, um, if you were to become part of it, you'd be given your own land, for example. You wouldn't be a just a serf, working on the estate of a rich people, you were given your own plot of land, and so on. You were given a voice in decision-making. I wanted to know what are the preconditions for liberalism. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, was it what you mentioned, which was existential security? Well, no, because you just flipped that. You said, actually, liberalism can thrive and then produce some security, even in harsh environments. And then I was wondering, well, are there mimetic preconditions? Are there memes? that need to be dispersed in the society and adopted before liberalism can come about? And if so, what would those memes be? Do you have any ideas? Well, other, other people can do a better job recounting the uh, history of this, but I'll do the best that I can. Uh, for one thing, uh, the cultural evolution of European society can definitely be seen as a process of multi-level uh, 
selection, basically competition between polities resulting in larger and larger uh, polities, ultimately the scale of European nations. You go back far enough and you find all these little city-states, hundreds and hundreds of them. Why don't they exist anymore? It's because they had to amalgamate in order to fight each other. And so that's what resulted in nations the size of, uh, of um, European nations. That's when, when it comes to nation building and things like that, and we go to other parts of the world, such as Africa and the Middle East, Afghanistan, which never actually ever achieved that scale of, of governance, and then we expect them to adopt a European model. It typically doesn't work because they never achieved that scale of uh, that scale of governance. So what you ended up with were very large societies that ultimately became autocratic and once again ceased to work for the common uh, good. And then democratic forms of governance emerged from there. Liberalism, the Enlightenment values emerged from there. And why... And then that then asserted greater equality and uh, ultimately resulted in more powerful nations. If you look, for example, at the, at the competition between England and France, England is a quarter the size of France, but managed to punch above its weight in part because of such things as the Industrial Revolution. Why did that take place in England and not France? It was because actually if you're an inventor, some kind of craftsman or or watchmaker or something like that in England and you came up with an investment, you had a way to develop that investment in a way that you would share the benefits of. It was, it was enough equality so that the merchant class, for example, had, had enough so that they could actually benefit from this sort of thing then in a more aristocratic uh, Society, And you didn't have to have many decades of that before you would have technological advances and so on and so forth in which you could punch above your, of your, uh, your weight. So, so, and if you look at the actual origin of these democratic movements, uh, the, the Masons, the Freemasons, become uh, a very interesting story here. I don't know if we want to go into it, but uh, uh, Freemason societies started out as actually societies of, of uh, architects, basically the people that built the great cathedrals and, and so on. So it was building and, and, uh, and architects. But then it morphed into a kind of a philosophical society that could accommodate more sectors of the society than normal aristocratic society. So you could become a Freemason um, and mingle with people that you couldn't do otherwise out of your uh, station. And then, um, and then um, they were the first ones to form an actually written constitution. That's a long story, I'm not sure, but it's, um, it's really quite fascinating that once again in small groups this became incubated and then expanded and uh, led to the, um, uh, to the democratic revolutions in France and, and um, America and all through, all through Europe in some ways was a scaling up of a form of governance that originated in, um, in these little tiny societies. I remember in this view of life you were talking about 
how the Europeans used to go and study other cultures and rate them essentially on a scale of civilized to savage. And that was the wrong way of, obviously, the wrong way of going about it. A better way was to be, would be something akin to looking at the Inuit and seeing how they're accustomed to the cold and they have their own practices to deal with it. And then we can say, oh, they're not savage, they're adapted to that environment. Okay, so then my question was, they're adapted because they survive well in that environment. Then the Europeans came along and invented cities and technology, and now they can survive in Alaska and the coldest parts of the world. Maybe better, but that's a question I want to ask you, is what does it mean to be adapted? And if, and if these white Europeans, let's just call them white Europeans, came and settled and now made brick houses with fire and electricity that goes right through, are they not more adapted than the Inuit then? Because they're able to survive better in these colder environments. Oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things you raised there, so let's try to unpack them one by one. Uh, I'm lucky to be trained as an evolutionary biologist. A lot of people that are playing this game uh, uh, were trained in some of the human-related disciplines, and they've picked up their evolutionary theory. Playing what game? Uh, well, the whole thinking of all aspects of humanity from an evolutionary perspective, basically this view of life, um, extending evolutionary thinking to explain all aspects of, of humanity. That's the game that I'm... Sorry, you mean to say that you have the advantage in that you were ensconced in evolutionary thinking first, then started to apply it outwards yeah, to other people. Yeah, and actually, yeah, and I'm a bit unusual uh, that way. Uh, the reason I mention it is that um, um, sophisticated evolutionary thinking includes uh, basically showcases adaptation, but there's a lot of other stuff as well. And so when we look at things that are out there, uh, sometimes they're adaptive, sometimes they're not. Even when they're adaptive, then um, what counts as adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word doesn't necessarily correspond to in the normative sense of the word. So back to the way we should be looking at cultures. Um, and during the Victorian, Victorian era, it was uh, very difficult for Darwin, along with his colleagues, to not to think of European culture as superior in some sense to all other cultures. Uh, yet, a more true evolutionary approach, as you just said, would be that most cultures are, uh, at least to some degree, well adapted to their uh, uh, circumstances. And so, uh, that's a more respectful uh, way to approach cultures, and one which is truer to evolutionary uh, theories. So in that sense, uh, the Inuits are better adapted to an Arctic climate than, than uh, Europeans, at least at first. Now you're saying that um, uh, such modern conveniences as housing and and uh, heating and, and so on is well adapted. And of course, those have been adopted by Inuits. They don't live in igloos. Uh, but if they did, let's imagine that there are some that still do. Well, I mean, that's not imaginary. There's all kinds of... Uh, of uh, indigenous people that uh, actually want to want to stick to their indigenous uh, ways, and to to a, a greater or lesser degree. And and one point to make, I think, is that that should be their choice. So 
Uh, and you see very interesting regions such as Ecuador, which have still a large indigenous and diverse, you know, many tribes in Ecuador that are now being represented in, in, uh, in the government. And so it's like our choice. What do we want to do? Do we want to modernize or, or not? Often they might. I mean, such things as, as medicine. I mean, who wants to do without modern medicine? Not many people. So, so it's, a, it's a very complex situation, but one which needs to be handled in a uh, egalitarian fashion that accords respect to all of the different uh, 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 stakeholders. There's a sense in which, and this is once again the, the egalitarian impulse, no matter who I am, what culture I represent, uh, there's some sense in which I need to be a moral equal and that my existence counts. I have some kind of say in the decision-making process based on my values. And so that's the, that's the concept of moral um, equality, which I think is pretty much uh, culturally universal, not restricted to weird societies is that uh, however the us gets defined then um, then there's some uh, feeling of of equality and that that has a a uh, an insistent dimension basically not only am I a moral equal but I will resist you if you infringe upon infringe upon that so if we're going to do something together it has to be in some sense with why with my uh, acquiescence. I have, to, I have to be able to say yes to that. Speaking on that, you mentioned most of the time when we're doing studies, it's on weird, quote-unquote, people. And we can't necessarily generalize and say that that's a human universal. When we talked about moralistic behavior being virtuous and courageous, or virtue being, cur- virtue being courage. Virtue being courage and honesty and forthrightness and so on and so forth. Is that a human universal? Um, close. I think it would be part of the human repertoire. Um, um, I'm just wondering because I don't know, and I'm curious, I don't know if certain tribes or certain other places in the world would say, well, actually, to be a moral person is to cut the head off your enemy and put it on your fence. Well, yeah, that, that, that too. I mean, as soon as you talk about how we behave towards them, then... Um, anything can go, as we've already, as, we, as we've already said. The world is full of situations in which we, the group, are threatened by them, and the moral thing for us to do is to cut off their heads and put it on a stake. It could also be moral. That line it is could also be moral to take. <laughs> What's that? So I'm just going to cut that line. The moral thing for us to do is by <laughs> David Stone Wilson. Thank you cut very much. Head. Yeah, that's it. That's all that's going online. <laughs> Thank you. It could okay, also be moral. Off. It could also be moral to take the deviant within the society and cut off their head and put it on a on a stake. These things are the only the way we think these are immoral. Uh, get this little padding feet out the way. It's okay. Just continue. I don't know if you know who Janice Fiamengo is. She's a professor of English. When I was interviewing her, she her cat just came <laughs> right right upon her. Lucy, you can sit up here if you want. 
I think that's gonna, that'll keep you silent and I can take a leap. Boom. <clears throat> now your, your viewership will go way up if you include the dog in the picture. Okay, okay, so we so were talking. So, oh, so these things appear immoral to us because we're taking a third person stance. We're, we're, not, we're not thinking of us as being in that, that group. And so therefore we're looking at these between group behaviors and also the, the, the policing the policing behaviors which cause us to be cruel to members of our own group. And we're seeing this in some kind of third person vantage, which makes it appear immoral. So much depends upon the perspective. Are you a moral relativist? Would you consider yourself to be that? Uh, how would you define moral relativism? That there are no objective moral standards. Pretty much what every culture has is good for them. No, I'm not at all a moral relativist. I think that, that morality axiomatically is about the welfare of others and society as a whole, as defined by the, by the community. And there's nothing arbitrary about what counts as moral or immoral uh, from the perspective of members of the moral uh, but well, you said as defined as by the community. So if they define it any way they want, is that okay? Uh, or are there some limits, boundaries? Well, typically, uh, one of my favorite authors is a novelist is Joseph Conrad, who wrote uh, many books about the sea. And he once said that uh, he likes writing books about the sea because they're so morally simple. Uh, very simply, if you're on a ship, then what you need to do is to stay afloat. You know who the group is, and you know what they need to do. They need to stay afloat. And so that provides a clarity, a moral clarity, which does not exist in other situations where we don't really know who the group is, and we don't really know what we need to do to stay afloat. Right? That makes things complex. But if you take a ship, then that moral clarity, I think, argues against relativism. Uh, at least on a ship, there's nothing relative about what counts as moral or who's in or who's out or, or anything like that. That's why space fantasy is so compelling for the same, uh, for the same uh, reason. Whenever we think of ourselves as in the same boat, then, and, and when we think about like survival as being really salient, then things become morally clear. That's, there's an important insight. Let's, 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 let's acknowledge progress where it exists. To be able to say that, I think, is then helpful when we now consider more ambiguous situations. I wanted to know if you think that what happens in the universities is isolated from society or not isolated, and I'll explain what I mean. Someone like Stephen Hicks, a philosopher, says, well, you shouldn't, you should be, people who are a part of the general public, should be concerned about the quote-unquote corruption of the humanities by the postmodernists. Now, I'm not having you take a stance on that, but it, he would say, you should be concerned, even though it seems like it's a relatively obscure, isolated part of the whole country. It's just one part of a university. You should be concerned because what happens in the university spreads outwards to the rest of society. And I wanted to know, what are your thoughts on that? 
is it true that what happens in the universities spread out to the rest of society? So we better be careful as to... I certainly hope so. <laughs> I certainly hope so. These intellectual... Even, sorry, I mean to say, even in fields that one might not think have anything to do with society. So for example, English... Well, English probably does have something to do with society, given that we speak it, but English, linguistics, women's studies, gender studies. So I think, I think that higher education, universities and colleges are a fascinating study of cultural evolution in their own uh, right. And uh, all things considered, of course, higher colleges and universities would not exist, and also the branches of academic knowledge wouldn't exist if they didn't have some impact on the rest of life. Often that's quite indirect. I think it was uh, Keynes, the economist, who said that uh, even someone who doesn't think that they're influenced by economists actually are. They're being influenced by some defunct economist from long, uh, from long ago. So these ideas do matter even though it seems that they might not. So there's one point, to be, uh, one point to be made. We should care about what they say. But another point that needs to be made is that, is that all of the branches of academia uh, need to become much more unified than uh, they are. And so the fragmentation of knowledge, I think, is a problem that needs to be Acknowledged, and I actually have a biological kind of metaphor for uh, uh, for that. Back to my training as a biologist. So, if you actually look at a archipelago, uh, which is a collection of islands, uh, you find they're biologically extremely diverse. Many species on archipelagos. Why is that? Well, it's because of uh, barriers to gene flow. Uh, so. If you're isolated on an island, then there's no gene flow with other islands, and so those populations tend to drift apart. Before long, they become different species, and they can't, they couldn't interbreed even if they were brought together. Also, on single islands, there's species that occupy different niches, and so they become different for that, for that reasons. And so archipelagos are very diverse. Okay, got that? Now think of uh, academia as an archipelago in which, uh, with many islands of, of, of knowledge. So basically, you have all of these different groups, schools of thought, that are developing their ideas, largely in isolation, from each other. And this includes not just the major disciplines, but all the schools of thought within any given discipline. They're not talking to each other. So what happens? Well, they begin to develop different vocabularies, use the same words in different ways. It goes this way, it goes that. Pretty soon, we, what you get is like a form of cultural speciation, which is mutual in comprehension. No one can understand each other. It's a Tower of Babel, you might so say. How? So that's not a good thing. So that's, that's a kind of diversity that's not worth wanting. Diversity is not good per se. There's forms of diversity that are not worth wanting, and that's one of them. So there needs to have some sense in which, in which People can communicate with each other, and that's not happening. That's one major role evolutionary theory plays, is to, is to actually uh, provide that unification of knowledge, as it already has in the biological sciences and can for all things human. Okay, I was just about to ask, so how 
do you see it being unified? Like you said, it, it would probably it start from evolutionary sciences. And this is a hard point to make because it seems... Um, Self-serving. It seems, um, what's the word I want to use? Proprietorial or, or um, totalizing, as is often put. But there's... Um, hold on a second. What the heck is totalizing? Totalizing? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Uh, what's the word of totalizing? It's a postmodern term. It's, it's, it's basically that you're kind of imposing a worldview on others and privileging it. Okay? So, and of course, there's a trigger sensitivity to, to that, which we can appreciate. But that loses the fact that, uh, that um, um, that uh, when you go back to uh, the way Darwin approached different people, back then before evolution, we had naturalists, they studied plants and animals, all these different branches of biological knowledge, embryology, biogeography, all of the different contrivances of plants and animals, natural, natural history. And what Darwin did was he actually managed to put these together, a single theory that made sense of all of these branches of knowledge. So, and that didn't eliminate them, it organized them. So that's what can take place now, is taking place now, quite rapidly in historical terms. Um, so um, uh, so that's, a, that's a great thing. When do you think the left goes too far, ideologically speaking? I think that Anyone goes too far when they, uh, let me just try to think about this for, for uh, so I think that anyone goes too far when they, when they uh, deny the authority of empirical evidence. If they're not being science-based, uh, trying to work out what's actually out there, the facts of the matter, and then proceeding on that basis, then they become unmoored from, uh, from reality. And then the second problem is, is, uh, is tribalism. And I think the left is as prone to tribalism as the, as the right. And these little academic tribes that we've talked about, I think, is when they become just universes in their own, in their own right, then that becomes part of the problem. Sometimes it becomes a problem with like you know, fighting between tribes. But even without that, you get academic tribes that become so ingrown that they're only writing for each other. And at that point, they become irrelevant. And nobody should care other than their own, their own kind. And they wink out of existence, you know, after a period of, after a period of time. So there has to be some sense of remaining connected. There's some kind of common project so that when we communicate, we actually are trying to do something uh, important at a large scale, which involves communicating with other uh, uh, people. Other other perspectives and so on, and then actually working towards those those solutions. 
I was going to ask you about the meme gene interaction. So when is it, or what are examples of memes that have lasted so long? I guess we can only talk about human society. What memes have lasted so long such that they affect our genes, the direction of evolution, maybe sexual selection? Yeah, so we'll spend a little portion of time talking about memes. And let's begin with the, the derivation of the term and the person who coined it. Of course, it was Richard Dawkins, and it was uh, part of his book, The Selfish Gene, and, and then a meme was some kind of cultural analog to gene. And so you can't really understand memes the way Dawkins introduced the term without thinking also about genes the way Dawkins conceptualized that term, which is really kind of esoteric. For Dawkins, a gene was actually not a physical entity, it was some kind of unit for information. Uh, he thought about genes in an extremely atomistic sense. He gave genes agency. Uh, he called them selfish. Uh, when in fact genes are part of a biological system, uh, they always interact with other genes and they always interact with the other components of the organism. So there's a systemic approach to evolution which includes genes in a more systemic way than Dawkins did. Uh, and without giving them such agency as selfish entities in their own right. And so, given the fact that Dawkins' concept of a gene was actually quite problematic, and, and biology has moved beyond it, then we should be suspicious from the beginning about his concept of meme, which inherited <laughs> most of the same properties. He thought of memes as, as very atomistic, kind of evolving on their own. Uh, he didn't think of complexes of memes. He actually had a term for them. He called them meme complexes, but never much thought about them. Um, he emphasized mostly the possibility that memes can become parasitic. Sorry, complexes of memes are just collections of memes? Yeah, they're like, like complexes of genes. If there's a genotype, why can't there be a memotype? Well, memotype doesn't exist as a term. Meme complexes does, but hardly anything is done with it. And so we're left with the idea that there's little bits of information, little cultural units that are kind of evolving in some soup on their own. Um, and, you know, some examples are like the phrase of a song. You know, the first phrase of happy birthday to you is a meme that spreads and so on and, and so forth. And so, and so, uh, the field of cultural evolution, as it's developed, I mean, there were lots of people that became entranced by the concept of memes and tried to do something with it. There were journals, there was the whole field of memetics and so on, and, and do you know, those have tended to peter out. While the field of cultural evolution as a whole has burgeoned. And so, how can we talk about cultural evolution in some sense without buying into the concept of memes? Is We still use the word meme, as a kind of a shorthand for some trait. Since we don't know the mechanistic basis, really what we're talking about is some trait at the phenotypic level. So when we want to talk about a, a trait that's learned and culturally transmitted, we call it a meme. That's fine, but don't associate it with some of these other things that, uh, that um, is part of the Dawkins uh, terminology. Now, um, in a, a video that you asked me to watch, and Jordan Peterson, he talked about Jungian archetypes. And if you go back to some of the early 
psychological thinkers such as Jung and Freud, uh, you have to appreciate how how primitive the evolutionary thinking was at that time. So although they were big thinkers and they were trying to apprehend something, uh, Freud's concept of the unconscious and the id and his basic concepts and Jungian concepts such as the archetype, I mean, they were reaching for something. But we really have to evaluate it critically from a modern evolutionary perspective. Again, there was a baby in the bathwater, but there was also quite a lot of bathwater, and we, it's up to us to sort it out. I think there is an intriguing correspondence with what Jung talked about as archetypes, with what evolutionary psychologists talk about as modules. And that's, I think, a better match than memes. Uh, so evolutionary psychologists properly say that, that our evolved psychology is highly adapted to solve the problems of uh, survival and reproduction in ancestral environments, and often they take the form of, of modules, specialized circuits that, that are dedicated to solving this problem or that. And so, um, and so we could imagine, for example, an us-them psychology, which is like built into us that gets triggered under appropriate uh, circumstances, mating psychology, all of these sorts of all of these sorts of, um, of things. And so is there some kind of fit between the modules of evolutionary psychologists and, and, uh, and uh, what, what Jung was reaching for with archives? Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's worth, that's worth exploring. Also, one of the things that's happened recently is that a lot of what's been attributed to genetic evolution is now needs to be attributed to cultural evolution, which is, and take language, for example. If you look at what Chomsky, people like Noel Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, um, thought about language, and also Steve Pinker, it was like a product of genetic evolution. There's a, a module for language, that kind, of, that kind of thing. The language instinct, as Steve Pinker put it. Uh, there's a universal grammar that we need to decipher, all of which makes it sound as if language was something that evolved directly by genetic evolution. But now it seems, uh, to an amazing degree, that language is much more of a cultural construction um, that has arisen more than once in different geographical regions by cultural evolution. And the grammars that evolved by cultural evolution actually need not be universal. No need for that. There's so many different cultural experiments. And that many aspects of human psychology, which we would think because they're so unconscious and intuitive and so on, we'd think that they would be a a module, evolutionary, a genetically evolved module. Maybe not. Uh, Maybe they're cultural gadgets that have been around for so long that they've, uh, uh, they seem like, they seem like first nature, actually they're second nature. So um, a lot which has been attributed to genetic evolution uh, might need to be attributed to cultural evolution. That's how deep cultural evolution goes. And that's pretty darned interesting. You mentioned in your book, This View of Life, that there's innovation oases, which are like geographic regions where innovation happens. 
Yeah. And that there's some principles that guide the growth of such a oasis. And then you outline seven. I don't know if you came up with the seven or someone else did. Well, that was uh, based on the work of Victor Huang, who is a, uh, a leader in entrepreneurship and, uh, and innovation. The point that I was trying to make there is that uh, has to do with adaptability. Um, so many cultures are well adapted to their environments, but how, how adaptable are they to change? How, how, how are they capable of actually changing and adopting to new circumstances? That requires some features of a culture that uh, don't always exist. And so uh, I provided a couple of examples from the business world of companies that are not just well adapted, but actually are capable of adapting to new circumstances, one of which was Toyota, which is famous as uh, an adaptable corporation. And in the case of Huang's work, um, he points out that isn't it interesting that, I mean, innovation is the name of the game. Every region of the world, every university, every city wants to be entrepreneurial and to be able to change for the better, but there's huge variation as Huang points out, in their ability to do so. And Silicon Valley is an example. What is it? What's the magic ingredient? And in a nutshell, um, and this is so very interesting, uh, he says that there's two vital ingredients. One is the need to cooperate. It has to be a really cooperative culture. And it also has to be really diverse. And those two things don't go together. Typically, we cooperate in our in-groups, <laughs> right? And our in-groups are relatively homogenous. So it's kind of a special thing to have a, a culture where you cooperate with diverse. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. People. And that is what takes place, happens to take place in certain regions of the, of the, uh, of the world. What are some other innovation oases besides Silicon Valley? 
He points to Israel, and of course, right away, you have to uh, qualify what we mean by being inclusive and diverse, because Israel is the very opposite as far as its exclusion of Palestinians, uh, for example. So what does he mean? He means very narrowly that the uh, compulsory draft in Israel takes people from all sectors of, an, of Israeli society and throws them together. Okay, And so now they're cooperating in a military context, and then when they leave the military, then they're able to cooperate in other contexts. So it, it takes the diversity that exists within Israeli society, and it causes that to be uh, cooperative. And in the case of Silicon Valley, we have um, a culture which is um, maybe a little bit surprisingly much more easygoing than you might think. That uh, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're not guarded of your ideas. You're not actually out just to make a pile of money. Often you have some kind of vision, and you're quite generous in in sharing it. People, you know, will invest money on a, on a handshake. A lawyer that Huang quotes says that if you're a really good businessman, you don't need a lawyer at all because you have trusting relationships. And, and then actually if somebody um, um, acts selfishly in a context like that because it's a, quite a closed community, everyone knows each other, well, soon enough it gets out that so-and-so didn't behave right and nobody wants to do business with them. And so there's a, a very informal level of policing, which is, which is good enough. Uh, it doesn't require legal uh, uh, restrictions. And then once again, that's diverse in a sense, but it leaves all sorts of people out of the system as, as well. It could be very clubby and, and so on. Uh, so when we talk about being diverse, we have to qualify it quite heavily. Well, I was thinking selfishly, one of my goals, I have a company called Indie Film TO, which is a nonprofit and it helps filmmakers with their arts so that they can be profitable with it. One of my goals is to make Toronto, possibly, the Silicon Valley of film. Yeah, okay. And then I was thinking, oh, that's so cool that this guy, David Sloan Wilson, an evolutionary biologist, outlined for me, great, thank you, seven principles that need to be engendered in this society in order to induce such, such an oasis of innovation. Right. And then I was thinking, wait a second, seek fairness, not advantage, was one of the principles, if I'm not mistaken. And, and then I was thinking, wait, but that, in my opinion, I used to live in San Fran, and I know a little bit of the business world. I don't know if that characterizes Silicon Valley, because there is a bit of, and a bit is a bit of an understatement, there's a bit of bullying and, and corporate bullying that happens. Now, let's go to Hollywood. Seek fairness, not advantage, definitely not a quality that Hollywood has, nor does it have, does it have the second trait, which is open doors and listening? Well, there's... Um, because I wish, it's very cliquey. I, I wish that I could channel my friend Victor to have this conversation. Um, and there's one dynamic that goes on that might explain some of this, which is like super interesting. And... Uh, uh, and it has to do with once a company succeeds and, uh, and then becomes proprietorial. So there's, I'm, I've become fascinated with the open source software development and all of its analogs, the Linux development and stuff like that. 
By the way, this movie that you're in is an open source movie. It's the first of its kind at this scale. All the footage is being released for people to see. So the dynamic is, is, that, is that the real creativity comes with this open source process. It's there that you get Victor's seven ingredients. People are operating in a really cooperative mode, so on and so forth. And that's tremendously creative. And then you get companies such as Microsoft or Apple or so on that become really successful. They try to capture it all. And they're able to do so. And once they capture it, then all the creativity drains out of it. And then you have the open source part of it, kind of sometimes it's just squelched, okay, and that capture is permanent. But sometimes, as with Linux, it actually flourishes and becomes so good that it beats out the proprietorial competition. And so as soon as you get corporate, basically, as soon as things turn corporate, then they tend to deviate away from these principles that Victor was talking about. What do you define as becoming corporate? Becoming corporate is, is that basically you become an entity that becomes profit maximizing and more interested in your own profit. Instead of vision driven? Or... Then vision driven and so on and, and so forth. And uh, in a book I recently read called uh, The Master Switch, by Timothy Wu, I believe his name is. These are well-known books that uh, I'm just kind of channeling. He talks about this dynamic again and again and again, stretching all the way back to the telegraph, the telephone, radio, television, cable television, all communication innovations that began in this open source fashion with this wonderful diversity and then became captured in some sense, that was a good thing because like, you don't want more than one telephone system, frankly. I mean, there's some sense in which one big system makes a lot of sense, but not if it um, eliminates innovation. And in so many of these cases, once you become a monopoly, you don't want the next thing. You definitely don't want the next thing. And then the final version of this was, was Hollywood basically, uh, now being captured by a few giant studios, churning out superhero movies. And, but where is the diversity? I mean, actually, it does exist. It exists with the indie films and with Netflix and so on and so forth. But the dynamic of this open sourcey kind of process in which those seven principles that Victor talks about are present is competing, in a sense, with these leviathans, which do not have those properties, and cease to be innovative. So I think Victor's right. Um, but that said, you can point to aspects of Hollywood or Silicon Valley that, um, that uh, are counting against that. And even given Hollywood as it is, I think, if you were to look at the assembly of a of whatever team gets assembled for any particular uh, movie with all of those credits at the end of the movie. I mean, it is a symphony of cooperation. And if you're the first grip or the cameraman or something like that, how you come together uh, for something, I'll bet is based on your reputation, the spirit of generosity, so on. So somewhere within the system, I think, that the, those ingredients that Victor was talking about might be present. But I don't know.
So what do you say to people who claim that there's no such thing as biological sex? For example, I sent, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the video. There was a professor who said, there is no such thing as biological sex. I'm a historian of medicine and I can debunk that. But then he didn't go on to debunk it. Well, I think that that's not correct, that there is such a thing as biological sense. But where we draw the line is, um, uh, and where it's been drawn before by uh, scientists and doctors, is pretty shameful and has been revealed to be false in, in retrospect. I think that uh, Anne is in, uh, my wife Anne is in earshot, but uh, uh, she'll tell you that back in the 70s when she was a young woman, it was received scientific wisdom that women's bodies would fall apart if they were to run a marathon. How's that? And so what is essentially male and female, I think, so often is socially constructed for the benefit of the powerful members of, of, um, of societies. And so more often than not, we have to pay attention to, to the socially constructed um, um, aspects. So, but uh, at the end of the day, we just have to let the chips fall where they, where they may. Earlier I was talking about the Inuit, and I think my question could be more simply asked. It's a rudimentary question. What is adaptive defined as? Is it simply your propensity to reproduce? Is it that you're not experiencing pain in your environment? What is the definition of adaptiveness? Such that we can say this is more adaptive than this. Well, the narrow definition of adaptiveness is something which uh, survives and reproduces better than its alternatives. Right? And so that's true for genes. Uh, drift is not adaptation. If we have a case of genetic drift where they have two things that have the same survival and reproduction, well, chance is going to cause one to become more frequent than the other, but that doesn't count as an adaptation. So it's not the case that anything that evolves is adaptive. Nevertheless, if something becomes more common based on its properties, then it counts as adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word. And so that's the definition that is standard in, for genetic evolution. And to a pretty large degree, it also counts not just for cultural evolution, but also um, learning. If you look at the Skinnerian process of, of uh, operant conditioning and you, you put the, the uh, rat in the maze and it does a bunch of stuff and presses the lever and gets some food and ends up pressing the lever because that was the behavior that, that delivered rewards more than other behaviors. What's called the matching law is basically a comparison of alternative behaviors, and it's saying the one that's most rewarding, it gets amped up. So it's adaptive. Do you believe in free will? Yeah, I do. I think that uh, on that I side with the early Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett and I don't agree on many things, but... He wrote a book called Elbow Room, Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting, um, that basically uh, equates free will with the latitude uh, uh, to make choices. And so I think that's a, a uh, common sense definition of free will that both exists and is worth wanting. But to elaborate on that just a bit, uh, you, you told me earlier about your physics background and the theory of everything, which is basically very a reductionistic concept that knowing only about the physical world, we might be able to explain everything. 
And I think that there's something profoundly false about that, and uh, which is revealed by evolution, and that evolution is not at all deterministic. Uh, there's something uh, not probabilistic, but uh, basically evolution um, results in in things which uh, they exist by virtue of of their adaptedness, um, and um, and you can't predict them on the basis of their physical properties. There's this concept of downward causation, that uh, when something evolves on the basis of of uh, of uh, survival and reproduction, um, the parts permitted it to happen, but they didn't cause it to happen. As long as the physical material results in heritable variation, then it's the environmental forces which cause something to be brought into being. And so the theory of everything has to include evolutionary theory, and there's a large portion of evolutionary theory which is amazingly detached from physical processes at all. I mean, everything that evolves has a physical process, but that physical process did not determine what evolved. All it provided was the raw material of heritable variation. And so all of that, I think, is really provides a lot of grist for, for thinking about uh, free will. Okay. Now my last question. This is just one that I've been thinking Your about. Your last questions are killers, I want yeah, to say. I, my last question is, <laughs> I'm, I'm a scientist, so I'm, I'm a scientist at heart, but I always like to critique and critique and critique. So I was thinking, I was thinking, I have this document of theories that I feel like undermine themselves. And postmodernism is one of them because it says there are no truths and therefore any yeah. claims to truth is power. Self-contradictory. But, but yeah, exactly, because that's a truth that you've claimed the power truth, the power narrative, in other words. Okay, and then I was thinking about evolution. Evolution's interesting because, in a sense, it can undermine itself, and I'll, and I'll explain how. We're selected not for our interaction with reality as such, or the objective world, but we're selected for what allows us to reproduce, and that may not necessarily match up to reality. So another philosopher, and I don't remember his name, said that even the, this world that we think is solid is we should think of it more like a computer icon that says that looks like a male, and then we don't confuse that male icon with the male itself. That's a user interface. So all of this is a user interface because that's all the evolution provides you is the ability to interact with the world such that you get what you want, and hopefully that's something like survival. Okay, so then that means that we don't we're not selected necessarily for our relationship with reality which means that whatever we think of as real might not necessarily be real, including the theory of evolution. So if the theory of evolution is true, which obviously, like, I, I believe you believe, I believe, then we can use it to undermine itself by saying the theory of evolution would say that we don't, we're not selected to match with reality, including our own theory of evolution. And I want to know what you think of that, because th this is just something I thought about for five minutes. Well, that line of reasoning would undermine any theory. So uh, I think the, the best part of what you just said um, is that you're right, what we perceive as reality has, is based on its survival value, not on any direct apprehension of, of reality. Uh, fortunately, 
I would qualify that a bit to say that that the relationship between objective reality and survival value is sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Sometimes knowing the world as it really is helps us survive in that world. And sometimes flagrant departures from reality helps us survive in the world. What that means is that we're able to function in both modes. That we actually have a module, you might say, uh, where we have ways of thinking that, that are proto-scientific. Uh, and that's proto-religious, uh, to, to put it cruelly. So that we do have a capacity to function as in scientific, objective reasoning modes to, to decide upon what's out there. And then science is an elaboration of that. But the, the point to make is that, is that even if we didn't evolve to apprehend reality, luckily we have a procedure, which we call the scientific method, which actually is capable of doing that. It doesn't come too naturally for us, and it has to be a social process, it's not an individual process, but aren't we lucky that there's a social process that enables us to actually determine what's out there? Um, um, and that's why we need to, we need to uh, protect science and make it the centerpiece of what we do in a modern world, because more and more our survival does depend on knowing the world as it really is. So we need science more than we ever did before. Thank you, man. I think there's a pattern with this. And you're familiar with Daniel Dennett's second endosymbiotic revolution, right? Where we get memes. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, what struck me in when I was I studied both. I majored in history and biology, minored in philosophy, and what struck me was so many similarities between these disciplines. One of which was in biologists, just starting with, with uh, prokaryotes, you have these vessels that have a code, and that code, you know, is the interface or helps the interface between themselves and the environment, navigates them through life. The ones that make it continue, ones that die, die. Protobiome. Then a miracle occurs, and this is going really well, and then a miracle occurs, first endosymbiotic revolution. They're trapped together as one, and in being uh, trapped, they externalize their internal codes into a new system, still within the boundary of the, the, the new wall, let's we'll call it that, the new wall. And this new externalized code becomes the interface, or let's say tailors the interface of the new wall, and runs, you know, is kind of the face of their evolution. To be, I know I'm being a bit, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, verbose. Uh, the next question I have was, okay, does the pattern continue? Do they gather together, a bunch of eukaryotic cells, do they gather together, externalize their code, and that code changes the interface of that new wall, and thus governs their evolution in that hierarchy? And of course, this is Daniel Dennett's memes, right? Uh, I mean, Daniel Dennett, I don't want to disparage him, but, but I mean, this has a whole literature that doesn't depend on Daniel Dennett. Totally. Uh, totally. Major transitions of evolution, Maynard Smith, Swarthmore, 
and on from there. So, uh, so anyhow, I'm not sure. I haven't read Dan's take on it, but uh, but whatever. I mean, let us simply say memes, right? Just to bring it down. Memes. Do memes gather together, externalize their code, and then have that code govern some larger interface, which governs their evolution? My question to you is: Is that what history is? that we come up with the law or written text and this externalized text governs our evolutions and thus the evolution of our, of our first our ideas, then of our, gen, our DNA, then of our RNA. And does that code then take on new life and become, for example, computer code, which acting upon itself and we're trying, this is the new push, getting it to evolve upon itself, is this going to be the next level of consciousness? The next code that is externalized from us, that governs our lives, our evolution. And that and computers in this way, your code is alive, follows this Matryoshka, Russian asking doll trend. Well... So that's my seventh question. Okay, well, I mean, broadly, uh, yes to that last one, believe it or not. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think theory. quite a lot about that. And uh, so I think that you're traveling in a good uh, direction. Right. One of my projects uh, with uh, funded by one of the uh, Templeton Foundations is to actually create, to first do interviews and then to create a documentary series on major transitions from the origins of life to the Internet age. So it's really that story that you were saying that we're documenting by interviewing experts. And um, I'm working with a documentary filmmaker named Alan Honick, who has really immersed himself in this. And so he's achieved an expert's level of knowledge with a lot of creative input uh, um, on his own. And we're interviewing people like um, Spoth Murray, um, Athena Actopus, who studies cancer from an evolutionary perspective, Rich Michaud, who's contributed to this, all the way up to internet folks like Tim O'Reilly and, and, um, and, and the like, as to uh, how there's, uh, we're at the point now where we need to have a, the final transition up to a global consciousness. If you've read my book, This Year of Life, you know that I anchor it with Pierre Thiel de Chardin, his concept of the Amiga point. Um, and uh, and so on. So it sounds like science fiction. Um, and these transitions are very much transitions of information, as you say. So, um, and it ends up with a symbiosis that's uh, going to be thoroughly entwined with technology and so on. I mean, the Internet will be the global nervous system, but uh, it does not self-organize is one point that needs to be made. It's does not it happened. No, it cannot. Um, it has to be guided by a selection process. And it's here that we have to be targeting the global good, uh, making that the target of selection. And if we don't do that, then it won't happen for sure. So this is where the idea of managing cultural evolution, uh, what does that mean? It means managing all three components of an evolutionary process. Those three components are selection, variation, and replication. What does it mean to manage them? It means we have to 
decide the target of selection, the global good, orient variation around the target, and then replicate best practices. That's what needs to be done, all with the global good um, in mind, and nothing less will do. So it's uh, pretty amazing that you could actually make a strong statement like that. And Yeah, I, I thought about it in my undergrad. Um, I discovered Dennett, I don't know if you'll believe me, afterwards. And when I found about your, how did like your evolution institute, I was very, very excited to speak. Well, that's that's uh, awesome, and I hope that you can get involved. And, and so we'll. I would uh, love to. We'll. Uh, and what I'm one of the things I'm trying to do is actually, uh, uh, literally build a movement, which is. Uh, build an army. <laughs> and I, I love it. Well, not yet. Influx. Not yet, but uh, but hopefully, and has the same kind of energy as a political movement, but with um, uh, motivated by an evolutionary worldview rather than a political ideology. That's the goal. So, any help would be appreciated. <laughs>